He's supposed to whip them in battle and drive them out and essentially destroy their hegemony, uh, their power over the Jews. But this is uh, sort of a, uh, a tactical approach. Well, we're just going to harass them a bit. Mm -hmm. And then he's very careful to point out that none of the Philistines can point a finger at him. Because they're worse than him. Because they're guiltier than I am. Mm -hmm. And that means that he's very concerned about the Philistines' opinion of him. Mm -hmm. So he's got an inferiority complex, as most losers do. to Why They Did That, a show that explores the motivations of biblical characters and how their choices can guide yours. Today's guest is an old favorite. It was his episodes on Job that really helped kickstart this podcast. His signature deep voice that enthralled many a listener his insights that caused many a mind to think deeper about the scriptures. And so we're excited to welcome back Dr. Carl Wilcox, an English professor and chairman of the general education department at Weimar Institute. Now, Dr. Wilcox is passionate about many things, backpacking, hiking, avoiding technology whenever possible to name a few, but none more so than assisting his students in understanding the word of God. All the classes he teaches, whether it be English, philosophy of education, or even speech class, are effectively Bible classes. And today is one of our mutual favorites, a study on the character of Samson. The book of Judges, as we've said before, is a frightening place for a reader to wind up. The stories are far darker, the events far more confusing. Even the heroes themselves aren't your obvious protagonists. Gone are your Daniels, your Josephs, and your Enochs, replaced by temple-piercing Jael, idol-erecting Gideon, and Samson. His strength unparalleled, his weakness also. Samson is called to be the deliverer of Israel, the one to finally free them from their oppressors, the one to, at last, put an end to the Philistines. At the end of the 13th chapter of Judges, it seems that his potential might be fulfilled. The word says that Samson the child grew and the Lord blessed him, no doubt with his supernatural strength. Regardless of his own strength, however, if Samson is to truly bring deliverance to his own people, he must first learn to be filled with the Holy Spirit. The problem though is that the Holy Spirit moved him at times. So he's at home, he's a young man, the Lord has blessed him, and now the Holy Spirit is moving him. And these two words at times suggest he moves him, and then he backs off, he moves him again, but uh, why plural? Why time? Well, I think we understand this, don't we? The Holy Spirit moves me to do something or not do something. Mm -hmm. And I moved and I think, yeah, but I'm not quite sure. I'm not ready to take that step. 
Well, then the Holy Spirit moves again at a later time. It may be a week. It may be the same day. Holy Spirit chooses his times. And the Holy Spirit will keep moving you to do the right thing or to stop doing the wrong thing until you actually obey or not. Mm. Samson really doesn't want to deliver Israel. Mm. That's just not what he wants. Right. What he wants is what comes after. Yes. He wants, in a way, rather than delivering Israel, he wants to become a kind of Philistine. Uh Although he hates them, he's also attracted to them. And at this point, it's important to understand that the Philistines are the winners and the Jews are the losers. Yeah. And he's been with losers his whole life. And here, he's now a winner. He's a hero. I mean, in the ancient world, uh, he's in the same guise as Ulysses or Hercules or, uh, you know, uh, Achilles. He's an amazing character. He'd fit right into the Greek Homeric legends. He's not a loser. And yet all the other Jews are. And there's more evidence that throughout of, of their loser status throughout the story. So, of course, he's going to identify with winners. Mm-hmm. That's probably why he wants to marry a Philistine woman. But yet when he gets into the wedding and he's a Jew and he's surrounded by these Philistines, he may be attracted to them, but he still hates them. So he doesn't start delivering Israel. Instead, he poses this riddle. As was already said, it's impossible to solve. That means he's posing a riddle because he wants to maybe not deliver Israel, but he certainly wants to embarrass Philistine. Mm. So he has a lot of ambivalence, you could argue, in his relationship with the Philistine. He is attracted to them, but he's also repelled by them. Anyway, we all know the story. They accept the riddle, and you can understand why, because it sounds like a riddle that's easily solved. Mm -hmm. Let's just read it. Verse 14, and he said unto them, Out of the eater came forth meat, and out of the strong came forth sweetness. Now, that's really a piece of genius right there. That riddle is very, very good. You know, uh, in the Greek heroic age, um, riddles were really important. Hmm. The Greek hero, as well as you know, the Anglo-Saxon hero of the ninth century AD, um, the pagan hero was not just a physical killing machine. He also was really intelligent. Hmm. And here we see that Samson is brilliant as well as strong because the riddle is perfectly designed to entrap his victims. And of course, they're entrapped. Yeah. We also learn something about the Philistines because then they get a hold of his fiance or his wife and they basically tell her in 15, if you don't get the answer out of him, we're going to burn you up. And this, of course, is a threat made to someone who's also a Philistine. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We're going to incinerate you. Of course, at that point, she's highly motivated to get the answer. And in verse 16, she starts to weep. She accuses him of hating her. Uh, you've put forth a riddle unto my people and you haven't told it to me. And then he said, well, I have not even told it to my mother or my father. Why would I tell it to you? Right, which... (laughs) That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Yeah, he's like, well, you know, if I wouldn't tell mom and dad, why would I tell my wife? But really... What kind of marriage is this? (laughs) And the thing is, this is not five years into their marriage where... You know, it might maybe it's a little bit rocky. This is the the service after the marriage. This is the the wedding feast. 
And already there's like these, there's not just cracks, there's gaping holes. <laughs> oh, yes. You know? Well, think about it. The Bible tells us in Genesis that when a, when a husband and wife are married, they do what? They yeah. leave their, their home, their parents, uh -huh. and they cleave onto each other. Yeah, one flesh. Now, what is he basically saying here? Well, I, why would I tell you? I haven't told my parents. He's saying, I'm not cleaving onto you. Mm -hmm. I'm really, my identity is still at home. Mm -hmm. In other words, he's marrying this woman, but he's not really, she pleases him, but he's not 100% there. Mm -hmm. And the reason is simple. He's a Jew. Yeah. How can you love the people that have ruined your, your life? But that's just it. He does. We've all been taught to understand that Samson's big problem is women, is lust. It's not though, is it? Samson's problem is that while he hates the Philistines because of what they've done to his people, at the same time, he's attracted to them. They are winners, victors, rulers, everything that he should be. He's meant to destroy them, but instead, what? He's marrying them. Whereas he should be wiping the floor with their blood, he's instead inviting them to his wedding ceremony for games and for fun. Essentially, his struggle is the same as many of ours are today. The temptation to be like the world, even though we know we shouldn't be. I mean, think about it. I, I sometimes ask my students, do you think that he prefers Philistines because they're more attractive? Philistine women are more attractive than Jewish women? Mm. Well, that can't be the case. I mean, yeah, these Jewish women were probably just about as pagan as the Philistine mm. women. But no, it's not about beauty. It's about status. I mean, I don't know if you've ever noticed, but really rich people, they aren't necessarily more attractive than the rest of us, but they know how to appear more attractive. Mm. They have more time to spend on it. They can spend more time at the gym, et cetera, et cetera. You know, and he's, he seems, he doesn't actually say she's beautiful and she's more beautiful than Jewish women. It just says she pleases me and we're left to wonder why. And yet he was raised with the Torah. He was raised as a Nazarite. Can he really cleave to a Philistine woman? Mm. We'll see. Anyway, she she really makes his life miserable. And um, it says in 17 that he finally just told her after a week because she lay sore upon him. And then she immediately tells the answer to her people. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, when the contest ends, they basically give the answer. And here's the answer. It's worth reading. And the men of the city said unto him on the seventh day before the sun went down, what is sweeter than honey and what is stronger than a lion? And that's Samson's answer to his own riddle. Mm -hmm. And the solution is just as poetic and profound as the riddle itself. Mm -hmm. It's one of the great pieces of literature um, in the Bible. And it's very short, but I don't know if there's any other riddles in the Bible or not. I don't think there are, but mm -hmm. this riddle, of course, would have appealed to the Philistines because, you know, they weren't Greek, but in the Greek, um, in the Greek uh, mythology, if you could answer another person's riddle, 
it was in effect the same thing as defeating them in battle. Mm. And Samson has just lost. And that has to be exceedingly upsetting. Because now he's a Hebrew. <laughs> because now he's a loser again. And uh, at this point, verse 19, he, he, he wins in the end. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him. This is the second time. He went down to Ashkelon, another Philistine city, and he slew 30 men. He goes down there and kills 30 men, strips their clothes off of them, and then gives those clothes to the Philistines who cheated him uh, in the riddle contest. And then it says his anger was kindled and he went up to his father's house. Samson now has the necessary motivation to rise to his calling. We hear for the second time in the story so far, the first being when he destroys a lion with his bare hands, that the spirit of the Lord has come upon him. Now his strength and the power of God are in alignment. Now is the time to strike, but he doesn't. He goes home. He effectively aborts his marriage, likely before he even consummates it and goes back to mommy and daddy. His wife is, is then given to his best man by her Philistine father. And, and if there's ever a time to rise up against this group of people, then it's now. Except as we see in Judges 15.3, while he's certainly not happy with them, he has absolutely no intention of putting them to the sword. Verse 3. And this is an interesting verse. And Samson said concerning them, that is the Philistines, now shall I be more blameless than the Philistines, though I do them a displeasure. Interesting line, isn't it? Yeah. Almost apologetic. It's a displeasure. He wasn't, he wasn't, Samson wasn't given to the Hebrews to cause a displeasure no. to the Philistines. He's supposed to whip them in battle and drive them out and essentially destroy their hegemony, uh, their power over the Jews. But this is a, sort of a, a, a tactical approach. Well, we're just going to harass them a bit. Mm -hmm. And then he's very careful to point out that none of the Philistines can point a finger at him. Because they're worse than him. Because they're guiltier than I am. Mm -hmm. And that means that he's very concerned about the Philistines' opinion of him. Mm -hmm. So he's got an inferiority complex, as most losers do. But this is a classic Christian problem. We're little people. We've been a great mission, but no one notices us. Over the generations, we have a kind of superiority, inferiority complex. God's given us a message for the whole world, but no one cares. Hmm. We keep proclaiming it, but hardly anyone notices. And that's the ancient Jewish nation. They were supposed to convert all nations, and yet they were oppressed by all nations. Hmm. Now, there's reasons for that. And there's reasons why we sometimes aren't listened to because maybe we aren't converted yet. Even in a secular context, all the people who are powerful, important, you know, who invent things, who are rich, they're all secular. We start to feel inferior mm. and a little bit shrill when we try to proclaim our faith and a little bit brittle and fragile. Well, at this point, he's just saying, well, well what I'm about to do no Philistines can blame me because you guys have done something worse to me than what I'm about to do to you. Who cares what they think? Right. <laughs> and, and what he does is baffling as well. You know, he ties up 300 foxes and 
kind of sets them on fire and they run through the cornfield. I mean, it's it's comedic almost when you think of his <laughs> the scale of his mission and and what he actually ends up doing. You couldn't have read chapter 13 and, no. and seen how important this is. No. And then 14 and seen how <laughs> angry he gets and then say, well, the solution is, is I'm going to set fire to some foxes. It tells you a lot about Samson. The, the fox thing is a lot like the riddle. Mm. It's just, you couldn't have predicted it. Right. I mean, there's not in a million years could you say, you know, that'd be a good thing. No, <laughs> there's not a story in the world like this that I know of. First of all, think about how difficult it is catch to catch that many foxes. The mind boggles. 300 foxes. I mean, you'd have to travel hundreds of miles, and then you'd have to contain them. Mm. You catch 300 of them. And it's very important to notice that um, he ties their tails together with a torch, a burning torch, between each of these, these pairs of foxes. So you've got 150 pairs of foxes, each with a burning brand tied between their tails. And of course, when you release them, they go crazy. And it says that uh, this is a scorched earth policy. I mean, in military terms, it's highly effective, but usually it's people burning <laughs> crops. Um, this is foxes. He lets them loose and they burn up. Notice verse five. The shocks, the standing corn, the vineyards, and the olives. Mm. I mean, it wipes out their great agrarian economy. That's the implication of verse 5. Now, he says something that's, that's just it's kind of mind-boggling, but I guess in terms of what we've discussed, it doesn't come as a great surprise in verse 7, mm. where it says, Samson says to them, though you have done this, yet will I be avenged of you, and after that, I will cease. Yeah, they've, again. They've, they've burnt up, yeah. you know, um, his wife, her father, like they've taken their revenge on what yeah, he's done. Yeah, they've taken revenge for, the only way they can get at him is to kill the wife he never had. And so again, there's, we, he's, he's shown that he has the necessary determination to yeah. make things happen. But he says, I'm going to have to do something against you, but then, then I'll stop. Then I'll stop. Yeah. I don't, I don't want to go too far. In other words, I don't want, you, I don't want us to really be enemies. Mm -hmm. I don't want to really be friends. I just don't want to be the loser. I kind of want to be a Philistine, but at the same time, I want to make you suffer mm -hmm. for all the things that I've suffered. It's very personal. And of course, they kill, they burn up the, the would-be wife and, the and, the, and her father because they figure out that he gave Samson's wife to his best man, and that made Samson mad. So that's the end of them. Mm -hmm. um, another thing that's really important to notice is that this particular feat of strength, or maybe it's a feat of agility, it's certainly athleticism at its finest. There's no mention of the Holy Spirit in connection with the Father. Mm -hmm. Now, some people have suggested that's because he didn't need the Holy Spirit to catch 300 foxes. But I'm afraid I don't follow that line of reasoning. This is every bit as miraculous as killing a lion with your bare hand. If not if, more so. If not even more impressive. So then the question comes, and this is... You know, the narrative is, is, is designed to get us to notice these details 
and to draw possible inferences. The question then comes, why does the Holy Spirit not get mentioned? Obviously, it took supernatural strength to do this. But why is the Holy Spirit not explicitly named in this in this instance? God hasn't abandoned Samson, but God is not willing that his Holy Spirit should be named in connection with this act, even though the act does go some way towards potentially delivering Israel. And you have to think about this a little bit. Uh, and you have to remember that God created foxes. And God created man to care for the animals that he created. And then think in real terms. Because again, I think sometimes we read these stories like fairy tales. We don't realize that this is flesh and blood. These are real events. Imagine the cruelty involved here in terms of the inhumanity, the inhumane aspect of taking 300 animals and, and, and burning them, in effect. Mm -hmm. Now, we don't know if they all died, but... This is cruelty at its finest. I mean, if someone did this today in America, they'd be jailed. I mean, this is considered criminal. I think that God does not endorse this explicitly because what Samson does here is incredibly cruel. So as brilliant as this is, it's not God's will that any deliverer of Israel would so abuse his creatures as part of that deliverance. So, and there's there's going to be other places where God's spirit, mm -hmm. even though Samson performs a great feat of strength, no mention of the Holy Spirit. And we just might, you know, I'll just, just let it out of the bag now. When he goes to the prostitute and, and he's surrounded by Philistines, he gets up in the middle of the night because he has an uneasy conscience. He knows he's doing something wrong. And he removes the gates of the city an incredible feat of strength, and yet no mention of the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. Because again, God cannot be identified with that immoral act. So cruelty to animals and fornication, both, you know, we see amazing strength, but no mention of the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. So God is merciful to Samson, but he will in no way allow us to think that somehow that's endorsed by God. Samson is your typical 21st century, one foot in, one foot out Christian. The potential to change the world, yet he submits to the world instead. Let's be honest, you've either been there or you are there. When we return, we'll see that the Spirit of God isn't done using Samson. The real question, however, is will Samson ever stop just using the Spirit of God. I'm Dean Cullinane, and you're listening to Why They Did That. If you like Bible stories, which it seems like you do, you'll probably love the Life and Light Collection. Created by Types and Symbols, the studio that brought you The Conflict Beautiful. This is a new edition of three of our most favorite books about the life of Jesus and his teachings, entitled Steps to Christ, Christ's Object Lessons, 
and thoughts from the Mount of Blessing. Steps to Christ is a practical guide to beginning or deepening your relationship with Jesus. Christ's Object Lessons delves into the parables of Christ, drawing insights from these ancient teachings that are as applicable for us today as when they were originally written. And Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing expounds on the beauty and hope found in the most powerful sermon ever preached. A sermon that creates the foundation for Christian morals, ethics, and justice. The Life and Light Collection is a beautifully designed, expertly crafted edition of these amazing books. And the Kickstarter campaign will be launching soon. There'll be some limited deals for early backers. So we want to encourage you to take a moment to visit lifeandlightcollection.com and sign up to be one of the first to know when the campaign goes live. See you there. Make no mistake, this story is a tragedy. Marred by horrible irony, Samson's life is one of missed opportunities. Never before has so much potential been left unfulfilled. Never before has the bar been set so high, yet the result been so far from what was expected. God's people have allowed their spirituality, and thereby their freedom, to be characterized by the success and failings of their judges. Samson was to be the one to change that, to want to free them from this sickening roller coaster of captivity, deliverance, and then captivity all over again. Halfway through the 15th chapter, Samson is now the captive. But once again, when his life is in danger, the Spirit of God intervenes to rescue him, leaving him with the perfect opportunity to finally complete his mission. You know, he said in 7 that after he, uh, after he committed the great slaughter at Edom, that he would cease. You know, and, and that's verse 8. Um, he went down and dwelt. He smote them hip and thigh with a great slaughter. And he went down and dwelt in the top of the rock, Edom. Um, and then the Philistines enlist the Jews to try to bind him. And that's important to notice because that suggests that even though they now have a potential deliverer, they don't want to be delivered. Mm -hmm. They really are losers. <laughs> and you can understand why Samson would not want to have been identified with them. Um, and he actually allows them to bind him up. But then, of course, when the Philistines approach, this is verse 14. This is the third place where the Holy Spirit comes. The Holy Spirit came mightily upon him, and the cords break. Of course, this foreshadows the experience with Delilah, where he tells Delilah, tie me up, and so forth. Um, the cords break. And then in 15, he found a new jawbone of an ass. Now, it's new, because if it wasn't new, it would fall to pieces. But he's just looking around. He has no weapon. And he picks up this piece of bone on the ground. And he slew a thousand men. So this is the high point. As you've pointed out, Dean, mm -hmm. this appears to be the beginning of the deliverance. 
And indeed, it's also the spiritual high point right. in the narrative. It seems like this is the only real time where he enters into, I guess what we'd call prayer, just conversation with God. Yes. And in fact, um, you have to look at 18 and 19 closely. After this great slaughter, it says he was sore athirst. So we don't get the impression that he was physically tired, but he was dehydrated. Mm -hmm. And he called on the Lord and said, Thou hast given this great deliverance. So there's a clear acknowledgement that God has given him the deliverance. But go a bit further up. If you go to 16, this is before he's thirsty. Samson said, With the jawbone of an ass, heap upon heaps, with the jaw of an ass, have I slain a thousand men. Full stop. Mm. In other words, he's taking all the credit to himself, and 16 reads very much like a memorial it's to like a himself. victory speech. Yeah. It's, look at me. Then he gets really thirsty, and his tune changes. Mm. Lord, you have given this great deliverance under the hand of thy servant, and now shall I die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised. Harry sounds like his parents, doesn't mm -hmm. he? They are the uncircumcised. They are the enemy. And I am their enemy. And I think this is really why we find such stories in the scripture, is that Samson seems to almost be some you know, otherworldly figure. He's got yeah. this supernatural strength, and he can achieve all of these amazing things. He kills a thousand men, boasts about how wonderful the job is that he's just done. And then he crashes, and it's in that crashing that he finally turns to God, and you're like, oh. Yeah. It's amazing, isn't this it? This is not some superhero. This is me. 66 books, written over the course of thousands of years by a multitude of authors. Yet the Bible does not function merely as a library of stories. Its ultimate purpose is to be a mirror. Through the reading and contemplating of these stories, we are to see a reflection of ourselves. As Paul once said, all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world have come. The stories are there so that you can understand yourself better, and also to serve as a mirror of Christ, to show how the love of God in conjunction with the Spirit of God, is the only thing that can truly save us. And if there's anything we need saving from, it's ourselves. So at the moment of his glory, it's all about him. Mm -hmm. I did this with this bone. I mean, aren't I incredible? It's a standard heroic boast. Mm -hmm. You find him all through the ancient world. And then when he's about ready to die of dehydration, suddenly he reverts back to a Christian. Mm. He suddenly recalls all the truisms. Namely, they're not Philistines, they're uncircumcised, they're my enemy. But more to the point, Lord, you gave me this victory. So you can see how important uh, <laughs> human weakness is mm -hmm. in the sanctification process. C.S. Lewis has this line where he says, you know, uh, God speaks to us in our pleasures, but he shouts to us in our pain. Mm -hmm. And here you can see that God only gets through to Samson's 
you know, true self when Samson's about ready to die. So in desperation, suddenly he prays the prayer that he should have prayed immediately. And this is a story of, of all of us. You know, the Hebrew characters are never static. Mm. They're, you know, the, the Greek characters in Greek narratives in the ancient world are static. You know, they're determined. Fate determines everything. But in Hebrew literature, unique in the ancient world, Hebrew characters are constantly changing, just as we have the option to change. And in this sense, you could argue that he's truly converted in 18, and then, of course, God gives him water. Um, it says, actually, God clave a hollow place that was in the jaw, and there came water there out. It's interesting that the water came out of the jaw. Mm. The tool that he uses to achieve this great victory is also the instrument of God's salvation. In other words, it wasn't really a tool. You weren't really wielding it. And the proof is, is that I'm now using that same tool to save you. Mm. In other words, I was wielding it the whole time. Mm. And the proof is that I'm now using it not to kill Philistines, but to save you. You were never the one with that weapon. It was never your weapon. And this is really important for us to remember. Because as soon as we have any kind of success in ministry, we immediately assume it's me. And of course, we add the necessary caveats. But inside, mm. yeah, I'm pretty good. And then we're desperate. And then the Lord uses the same tool to show us that we didn't really do anything. We were there, we were an instrument, but we were the tool. We were not the ones wielding the mm. tool, <laughs> as it were. It's important to note that although the Holy Spirit comes upon Samson, uh, when Samson begins to deliver Israel, even though he doesn't intend to, it's arguable that he does at least begin um, the Holy Spirit is upon him, but there's no resonance. There's no mm -hmm. sense that the Holy Spirit is within, or the Holy Spirit and his spirit are in unity. It's more that Samson has a personal agenda, whether it's revenge or trying to somehow win approval of the Philistines, perhaps. It's more Samson's agenda, which God is having to try to use in spite of Samson to achieve his divine objective. And that's a concept that is worth dwelling on because, mm -hmm. you know, we, we shouldn't assume that because God is using Samson that um, Samson will be saved in spite of himself in the sense mm -hmm. that he can do whatever he likes, but God will somehow still make Samson his hero and Samson will still achieve his mission. Mm -hmm. Um and there's a sense here in which we can learn that being used by the Holy Spirit is not the same thing as being at one with the Holy Spirit. Mm. And we sometimes flatter ourselves because God is so merciful and he, 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 he condescends to use our ministry even though it's motivated by selfish purposes. And maybe even though someone's baptized 
All of that is God's working, but it doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit and I are at one. And therefore, it doesn't mean that the person ministering will necessarily even be saved. And uh, this is an internal matter, but to me, it it shows that it's not enough to simply look at results. Mm. You know, ministry is so obsessed sometimes with numbers. And I believe those numbers are a product of the Holy Spirit's movement upon people. But that doesn't prove that the person ministering is actually following God's will. It's interesting that you brought up the the ministry aspect of this. Um, A while ago, I had this experience where I was called to to preach and I went there and I preached and it was received really well um, and I was like oh that's that's great I'm because you know it's I, th- I think it's it's fine to be happy or cheerful when you know you, when you feel as though the message that God has given you has been received well indeed um, and I was I was I was grateful for that but I had this this time, I guess you could say a time of reflection afterwards where I'd looked back on, you know, what had essentially been seven years of being a Christian, mm. seven years of preaching because I started as soon as I came into the church because for me, there was no alternative. It was like, how can you know this and not be sharing it? And I had, I had this moment where it, it dawned on me that my experience, my own personal experience with God was almost solely just him using me to preach and to minister. And so the the point of leading up to the, the sermon, you have this spiritual high where now you're studying the word, you're studying the word and it's great. You preach and then you come off that mountaintop and you're sitting there at the bottom of that valley and you're looking up and it almost seems like, you know, well, that, that wasn't even me. Mm. And, 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 and like you said, we give these, we, we utter these, these platitudes where, you know, we say all the right things and we give glory to God and whatnot. But I realized at that moment that almost my entire religious experience, I had just become content with God just using me like like a tool like 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 the jawbone Mm. I was and and it wasn't just God is using me that was great it was God was just using me at times and it was interesting because that whole year I'd been studying the story of Samson that whole year like I I couldn't get out of it every time I was like all right you know Dean's April (laughs) still in Samson you know move on there's more things it was like that story just wouldn't leave me alone and and I I've been able to identify with Samson in the past but not like this, you know, growing up as a young man, you see Samson as this figure, you know, this, this figure that struggles with lust and all the young men can relate to that. But at this point, I was looking at Samson as not, a, not necessarily a man that just struggles with lust, but ra- rather a man that is struggling with his identity in Christ, with finding who he is. And at that moment, God spoke to me and said, I have 
been using you, but you've never allowed me to fill you. And, and you think because you've done all of these things and because you've seen these results, you've seen baptisms, you've been in the pool, you've seen the articles that have been written and you're like, man, God really came through. I was like, it just hit me like a ton of bricks. This was done in spite of me. It was never because of me. And you'd never say God did it because of me, but you kind of feel it a little bit. Sometimes you have this victory speech that Samson had where people ask you how it went. It's like, oh, you know, 36 baptisms. How about that? <laughs> you know, and, and it, it, it hit me where God was just saying to me, Dean, our relationship needs to be more than, than you just, than me just being your toy that you just use to say, okay, this, this was great. And, and, and God did it. You know, God did it instead of actually giving me the actual glory for this and that's the moment when I realized that this story is it's it's all about this yes it's all about me and it's all about how I'm seeing God how I'm allowing God to actually come in and at that time I was like you know I'm just tired of this yes. I'm tired of this roller coaster I'm tired of having these great experiences with the Lord and then just finding myself again, you know, in the proverbial bottomless pit where I just feel shackled by the fact that I've gone back to, to my old sins. I've gone back to, you know, whatever my harlot is. And I was like, God, I don't want this anymore. You know, I don't want to just be used. I don't want to, you know, just preach a good sermon now and then or write a good paper now and then, or, you know, touch this person or touch that person. I want to have an actual life where I'm filled by the Spirit of God. And I can't say that I've reached that point. Where like now, you know, Dr. Wilcox is really, you know, I'm filled <laughs> by the Spirit of God. No, it's a process. Um, but I'm closer in the sense where I'm recognizing my need. I'm recognizing that I need to be filled and that I can't do the filling. And I'm there now because this story reached me. I'm there because God said, you know, Samson is in this book because there's young men out there that need to find their place in me. And and Samson is used by God. The Holy Spirit comes upon him mightily. But it's clear that emotionally and spiritually he's empty because when he meets Delilah, mm. he very quickly tries to make her his God. In other words, all of these things, like you're explaining, all these great victories, mm-hmm. they've been done in the strength of God but he doesn't know God. And God does not fill up his soul. He's empty. And that's the danger of professional ministry, uh, of good works in general, is that I start to value more the fact that I know about God than I value knowing him. He that hath an ear, let him hear. And you just heard our latest show. If you'd like to hear more or hearken back to a previous episode, you can find us at whythedidthat.org. Please also subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on your favorite social media platforms, such as Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at whythedidthat. And we're on YouTube now as well. 
where you can actually watch this episode as well as listen to it. So make sure to check that out. This show was produced by the supremely talented Paul Keefe and the video editing by Jonathan J.J. Jensen. Once again, I'm Dean Cullinane and you're listening to Why They Did That.